Chapter thirty two of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty two. There was a low, deserted house standing far back from the road, in a piece of common ground skirting the forest between Lindwell and Nottingham. There were some trees before it, and some bushes, which screened all but the thatched roof from observation as the traveller passed along. There was a dull pond, too, covered with green weed between it and the trees which exhaling unwholesome dews covered the front of the miserable-looking place with yellow lichens and filled the air with myriads of droning gnats and there it stood with the holes where door and window had been gaping vacantly like the places of eyes and nose in a dead man's skull all the woodwork had been carried away and part even of the thatch so that a more desolate and miserable place could not be met with, perhaps, in all the world, though at that time there was many a deserted house in England, and many a hearth which had once blazed brightly amidst a circle of happy faces, was then dark and cold. It was a fit haunt for a murderer, and before the door appeared Richard de Ashby, a few moments after he had parted from his fell companions, "'sending them onward to perform the bloody task he had allotted them. "'His dark countenance was anxious and thoughtful. "'There was a look of uncertainty and hesitation about his face. "'Aye, and his heart was quivering with that agony of doubt and fear "'which is almost sure to occupy some space between the scheme and the execution of crime. "'The ill deed in which he was now engaged was one that he was not used to. It was no longer some strong, bad passion hurrying him on, step by step, from vice to vice and sin to sin, but it was a headlong leap over one of those great barriers raised up by conscience and supported by law, divine and human, in order to stop the criminal on his course to death, destruction and eternal punishment. He sprang from his horse at the door. He entered the cottage. He stood for a moment in the midst, he held his hands tightly clasped together, and then he strode towards the door, murmuring, "'I will call them back. I can overtake them yet.' But then he thought of the bond that he had given, of the objects that he had in view, of rank and wealth and station, of Lucy to Ashby and her beauty, of triumph over the hated Mothama. Never, never did Satan, with all his wiles and artifices, more splendidly bring up before the eye of imagination all the inducements that could tempt a selfish, licentious, heartless man to the commission of a great crime than the fiend did then for the destruction of Richard de Ashby. He paused ere he recrossed the threshold. He paused and hesitated. It is too late, he thought. They will but scoff at me. It is too late. The die is cast and I must abide by what it turns up. This is but sorry firmness, after all. Did I not resolve on calm deliberation, and shall I regret now? He paced up and down the chamber for a while, and then again murmured, I wished I had brought Kate with me. I might have toyed or teased away this dreary hour with her. But no, I could not trust her in such deeds as this. They must be at the Hawthorn by this time. I hope they will take care to conceal themselves well, or the old man will get frightened. He is of a suspicious nature. There's plenty of cover to hide them. I will go tie the horse behind the house so that no one may see him. 
His true motive was to occupy the time, for thought was very heavy upon him, and he contrived to spend some ten minutes in the task, speaking to the charger and patting him, not that he was a kindly master, even to a beast, but for some time the animal was a companion to him, and that was the relief which he most desired. He then turned into the cottage again, and once more stood with his arms folded over his chest in the midst. "'What if they fail?' he asked himself. "'What if he suspects something and come with help at hand? "'They might be taken, and my bond found upon them. "'They might confess, and, to save themselves, destroy me. "'Twere a deed well worthy of Ellaby. "'No, no, tis not likely. "'He will never suspect anything.' "'Hark! There is a horse. I will look out and see.' And creeping round the pond to the side of the bushes, he peered through upon the road. But he was mistaken. There was no horse there. The sound was in his own imagination, and he returned to his place of shelter, feeling the autumnal air chilly, though the day was in no degree cold. It was that the blood in his own veins had, in every drop, the feverish thrill of anxiety and dreadful expectation. No words can tell the state of that miserable man's mind during the space of two hours, which elapsed while he remained in that cottage. Remorse and fear had possession of him altogether. Ay, fear, for although we have acknowledged that perhaps the only good quality he possessed was courage, yet, as resolution is a very different thing from bravery, so were the terrors that possessed his mind at that moment of a very distinct character from those which seized the trembling coward on the battlefield. There was the dread of detection, shame, exposure, the hissing scorn of the whole world, everlasting infamy, as well as punishment. Death was the least part indeed of what he feared, and could he have been sure that means would be afforded him to terminate his own existence in case of failure, the chance of such a result would have lost half its terror. But there was remorse besides, remorse which he had stifled till it was too late he saw his kinsman's white hair he saw his countenance he endeavoured in vain to call it up before his eyes with some of those frowns or haughty looks upon it which his own vices and follies had very often produced there was nothing there now but the smile of kindness but the look of generous satisfaction with which from time to time the dear earl had bestowed upon him some favour or afforded him some assistance. Memory would not perform the task he wished to put upon it. She gave him up to the anguish of conscience, without even awakening the bad passions of the past to palliate the deeds of the present. He leaned on the dismantled window-frame, with his heart scorched and seared, without a tear to moisten his burning lid, without one place on which the mind could rest in peace. The hell of the wicked always begins upon earth, and the foul fiend had already the spirit in his grasp and revelled in the luxury of torture. At length there came a distant sound, and starting up he ran forth to look out. His ears no longer deceived him. The noise increased each moment. It was the horse's feet coming rapidly along the road. He gazed earnestly towards Lindwell, but instead of those whom he expected to see, he beheld a large party of cavalry riding by at full speed, and as they passed on before him, galloping away towards Nottingham, the towering form of Prince Edward rising by the full head above any of his train, caught the eye of the watcher, 
and explained their appearance here. The rapid tramp died away, and all was silent again. Some twenty minutes more elapsed, and then there was a duller sound, but still it was like the footfalls of horses coming quick. Once more he gazed forth, and now he beheld, much nearer than he expected, four mounted men approaching the cottage, but avoiding the hard road and riding over the turf of the common. One of them seemed to be supporting another by the arm, who bent somewhat feebly towards his horse's head, and appeared ready to fall. In a minute they came round, and Ellaby, springing to the ground, while the man they had called Parson held the rein for Dighton's horse, aided the latter to dismount and led him into the cottage. "'It is done,' said Ellaby, in a low voice. "'It is done, but Dighton is badly hurt. The old man passed his sword through him when first he struck him, and would have killed him outright if I had not stabbed the savage old boar behind. We cast him into the little sand-pit there, but poor Dighton is bad and can scarce sit his horse.' "'Yes, yes, I can.' said Dighton in a faint tone. If I had a little wine I could get on. I have some here in a bottle, cried one of the others. Dighton drank, and it seemed to revive him. I have had worse than this before now, he said. I can go on now, and we had better make haste, for there were certainly people coming. Away then, said Richard to Ashby, away then to Lenton, and then run down to Bridgeford. If you can get to Thorpe to-night, you would be safe. I will to the castle and be ready to console my fair cousin when the news reaches her. She will have heard it before that, murmured Dighton, for I tell you there were certainly people coming. And taking another deep draught of his wine, he contrived to walk, almost unassisted, to the horse's side and mount. There was a black look, however, under his eyes, a bloodless paleness about the face, and a livid hue in his lips, which told that his wound, though not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, to use the words of Mercutio, was enough. "'Fail not to give me tidings of you,' said Richard to Ashby, speaking to Ellaby, and going round to the back of the cottage, he mounted his horse, which by his pawing seemed to show that the long delay had not been less tedious to himself than to his master, and galloped away to Lindwell, anxious to reach the castle before the news. Even at the rapid pace at which he went he could not escape thought. Black care was behind him, and eagerly he turned in his mind all the consequences of the deed that he had done. His own conduct was the first consideration, and a strange consideration it was. What was he to say? What was he to do? At every step he must act a part, ay, and, like the poor player, who sometimes, distressed in circumstances, pained in body or grieved in mind, has to go laughing through the merry comedy. The character which Richard de Ashby had now to play was the direct reverse of all the feelings of his heart. Crime, however, produces an excitement of a certain kind independent of the very gratification obtained. We have in our own day seen murderers laugh and sing and make merry, with hands scarcely washed from the blood of their victim. And strange to say, when Richard de Ashby resolved to assume a face of cheerful gaiety on arriving at Lindwell Castle, the only danger was that he would overact the part. In truth, remorse, like a tiger, lay waiting to spring upon him the moment action ceased, but for the time his mind was much relieved. 
and more buoyant than it had been while watching in the cottage. Doubt, hesitation, apprehensions regarding the failure of the deed were all gone. It was done irretrievably. It was accomplished, not only without any mischance, but with a circumstance which promised to remove one of his accomplices, and that was no slight satisfaction. So smooth does one crime make the way for another, that he who had lately pondered with no small hesitation the very deed in which he was engaged, now felt, glancing through his mind, with satisfaction, the thought of disposing of Ellaby also by some similar means, and leaving none but the two inferior ruffians, whom he might easily attach to himself and render serviceable in the future. Crimes are gregarious beings, and are seldom, if ever, met with single. His horse was fleet, the distance was not great, and in the space of about a quarter of an hour he saw the towers of Lindwell rising over the woody slopes around. He then checked his speed in some degree, going on at a quick but still an easy canter, knowing that there was always someone on the watch-tower who might remark the furious gallop at which he came, unless he slackened his pace. He had soon reached the open space, he had soon mounted the hill, the drawbridge was down, and doors of the barbican were open. One of the warders sitting quietly on a bench in the sun, two or three stout yeomen and armed men were amusing themselves between the two gates, and all turned to salute their master's kinsman as he passed, without giving the slightest indication that anything was known amiss within the walls of Lindwell. Dismounting at the inner gate and giving his horse to one of the grooms, Richard Ashby was upon the point of asking for his cousin Lucy, but recollecting his part again, he inquired if the Earl were there, adding, "'I thought to have met him between this and Nottingham.' "'No, Sir Richard,' replied the porter, moving slowly back to the great gate of the hall. "'My lord had ordered his horses and train to be ready for Nottingham by noon, but news came from the city which stopped him, and then the son of old Uchtred, the swine-driver, brought a letter on which my lord went out on foot and alone.' He would not even have his page, but carried the, but carried his sword himself. Methinks that was rash," said Richard to Ashby. "These are not times to trust to. Can I speak with the Lady Lucy? Know you where she is?" "In her own chamber, I fancy, poor lady," replied the porter. "Go, Ned, and tell her that Sir Richard is in the hall and would fain see her." Richard to Ashby was a hypocrite. He was a hypocrite in everything. Though a man of strong passions and of fierce disposition, it was not when he seemed most furious or most angry that he really was so, any more than when, as on the present occasion, he seemed most gay and light-hearted, that he was in reality cheerful. While the page went to seek for his fair cousin, he walked up and down the hall, humming a light tune, and seemingly occupied with nothing but those dancing phantasms of imagination which serve a mind at ease to while away a few idle minutes. The only thing which, during the whole time he was kept waiting, could have betrayed even to eyes far more keen and scrutinising than those which now rested upon him, that there were more deep and anxious thoughts within, was a sudden start that he gave on hearing some noise and several persons speaking loudly in the court. But the sounds quickly passed away, and the next minute Lucy herself entered the hall. She was pale, and her countenance seemed thoughtful, but her demeanour was calm, and though she had never loved the man that stood before her, she addressed him in a kind tone, saying, 
I give you good day, Richard. We have not seen you for a long time. No, fair cousin, he replied, and I rode here in haste from Nottingham, thinking I might be the bearer of good tidings to you. But I fancy from your look you have heard them already. What may they be? said Lucy, the colour slightly tinging her cheek. Why, answered Richard de Ashby, they are that a certain noble lord, a dearer friend of yours than mine, fair cousin, who lay in high peril in Nottingham Castle, has made his escape last night. So I have heard, replied Lucy, her eyes seeking the ground. People tell me they had condemned him to death without hearing him. Not exactly so, said Richard de Ashby. They heard him once, but then... Oh, lady! Oh, lady! cried one of the servants, running into the hall, with a face as pale as ashes, and a wild, frightened look. Here's a yeoman from Eastwood, who says he has seen my lord lying murdered in the pit under the bull's hawthorn. Lucy gazed at the man for a moment or two, with her large, dark eyes wide open, and a vacant look upon her countenance, as if her mind refused to comprehend the sudden and horrible news she heard. But the next moment she turned as pale as ashes and fell like a corpse upon the pavement. "'Fool, you have killed her!' cried Richard de Ashby, really angry. "'You should have told her more gently. Call her women hither.' The man remarked not, in his own surprise and horror, that Richard de Ashby was less moved by the tidings he had given than by the effect they produced upon Lucy. All was now agitation and confusion, however, and in the midst of it the poor girl was removed to her own chamber. The peasant who had brought the news was summoned to the presence of the murdered man's kinsman, and informed him that, in passing along at the top of the bank, he had been startled by the sight of fresh blood, and at first thought some deer had been killed there, but, looking over the hedge, he had seen a human body lying under the bank, and, on getting down into the pit, had recognised the person of the earl. He was quite dead, the man said, with a cut upon the head and a dagger still remaining in a wound on his right side. Instantly coming away for help to bear him home, he had found, by the way, not far from the pit, the murdered man's sword, which he picked up and brought with him. On examination the blade was found to be bloody, so that the earl had evidently used it with some effect, but the peasant had found no other traces of a conflict, and had come on with all speed for aid. One of the flat boards, which in that day placed upon trestles served as dining tables in the castle hall, was now carried out by a large party of the earl's servants and retainers, in order to bring in the corpse. Richard de Ashby put himself at their head, and by his direction they all went well armed, lest, as he said, there should be some force of enemies near. It was now his part to assume grief and consternation, and as they advanced towards the well-known spot, he felt it must be acknowledged, his heart sink, when he thought of the first look of the dead man's face. But he was resolute, and went on, preparing his mind to assume the appearance of passionate sorrow and horror, calculating every gesture and every word. The old hawthorn tree, which was a well-known rendezvous for various sylvan sports, was soon in sight, and a few steps more brought them to the bloody spot near the edge of the pit, where both the green grass and the yellow sand were deeply stained with gore in several places. 
Many an exclamation of grief and rage burst from the attendants, and Richard de Ashby, with a shudder, cried, "'Oh, this is terrible!' "'Hello, but where's the body?' cried a man who had advanced to the side of the pit. "'Don't you see it?' said the peasant who had brought the news, stepping forward to point it out. "'By the Lord, it is gone!' Richard de Ashby now became agitated indeed. "'Gone!' he exclaimed, looking down. "'Gone! The murderers have come back to carry it off!' And, running round to a spot where a little path descended, after the manner of a rude flight of steps, into the sand-pit, he made his way down, followed by the rest, and searched all around. The spot where the body had lain was plainly to be seen, marked both by some blood which must have flowed after the fall from above, and also by a fragment of the earl's silken pourpoint, which had been caught and torn off by a black thorn-bush as he fell. "'They cannot be far off,' said the peasant, "'for the poor gentleman was a heavy man to carry, and there seemed nobody near when I was here.' Pshaw! cried Richard de Ashby. "'There might have been a hundred amongst the bushes and trees without your seeing them.' However, he continued eagerly, let us beat the ground all round. Someone run back to the castle for horses. If we pursue quickly, we may very likely find the murderers with the corpse in their hands. It may be, Sir Richard, said one of the attendants, that some of the neighbouring yeomen or Franklins coming and going from eastward to Nottingham Market, which falls to-day, may have chanced upon the body and carried it to some house or cottage near well we must discover it at all events said richard de ashby who feared that one half of his purpose might be frustrated if the letter which he had written under the name of hugh de mothama was not actually found upon the corpse spread round spread round let us follow up every path by which the body could be borne shouting from time to time to each other that we may not be altogether separated. But here come more men down from the castle. We shall have plenty now. Let six or eight stay here till the horses arrive, then mount and pursue each horse-road and open track for some two or three miles. They cannot have gone much farther. All efforts, however, were vain. Not a trace could be found of the body or of those who had taken it and although Richard de Ashby at first had entertained no doubt that they would find it in the hands of some of the neighbouring peasantry, and only feared that the important letter might be by any chance lost or destroyed, he soon became anxious, in no ordinary degree, to know what had become of the body itself. Had it been found, he asked himself, by those bold tenants of Sherwood, whose shrewdness, determination, and activity he well knew, and if so, might not the dagger which Ellaby had left in the wound, and with the haft of which he himself had sealed the letter, prove, at some after point, a clue to the real murderers? His heart was ill at ease. Apprehension took possession of him again, and towards nightfall he returned to the castle, accompanied by a number of the men who, by that time, had rejoined him, with a spirit depressed and gloomy and a heart ill at ease indeed. End of chapter 32